The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today, we're talking about transgender teens and their parents. The journey that a transgender teen takes from confusion and fear to acceptance and consolidation of gender identity is often a difficult and confusing one, both for them and their parents. What does the transgender teen face? What do they fear? What do they need? What helps parents understand How can they support their teens? We are so fortunate to have as our guest and expert today, Dr. Tandy A., Professor of Pediatrics at Stanford Medicine and a pediatric endocrinologist at the Stanford Children's Health Pediatric and Adolescent Gender Clinic. Dr. A. will be addressing our questions and discussing the findings of her important innovative Stanford study. In addition to being a professor of pediatrics and child psychiatry, Dr. Tandy A. practices pediatric endocrinology and is the founder and medical director of the Stanford Children's Health Pediatric and Adolescent Gender Clinic. Her research, which we are going to discuss today, is entitled Perceptions of Support Among Transgender and Gender Expansive Adolescents and Their Parents. Dr. Ray has also done a TED Talk advocating for how to rethink gender health care for our gender-expansive adolescents. She's a graduate of Johns Hopkins University and Jefferson Medical College. She completed her internship and residency at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a fellowship in pediatric endocrinology at Mass General for Children and Jocelyn Diabetic Center. Dr. Tandy A., it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay. Dr. A., let's set the stage with some definitions and clarifications for our listeners. What is the difference between sex and gender? So sex is what really gets assigned to us at birth, really based on our external genitalia and anatomy. And sometimes sex is also determined by perhaps chromosomes or a blood test that may be done right before someone's being born. So it really gets assigned. And what I like to think about in terms of gender is how we define ourselves internally, how we think of ourselves as being male or masculine or female or feminine, and how that identity fits. And sometimes it fits with who we are assigned at birth, and sometimes it doesn't fit with the assignment that we've been given at birth. Mm -hmm. So when we speak about transgender, bigender, cisgender, how do we understand those terms? So... It really comes from some chemistry terms. When we're talking about cisgender, it means that it aligns with someone who's 
had a assignment at sex of their sex of masculine or feminine or male or female at birth with their gender identity. And so that's what it means to be aligned or cisgender. When the thought is it doesn't align and it aligns with the other one or transgender, that means you might have been assigned something at birth, but it doesn't align with the identity at the present time. So you Mm -hmm. could be, for instance, assigned female at birth, but may identify as more masculine or male or even non-binary. And then there's something called bigender where you're actually having an identity of both male and female. Okay. Now, many parents and even grandparents, teachers wonder, is being transgender or bigender a choice? Or is this a neurophysiological reality, a genetic reality that a youngster faces I think the gender identity that comes out is something that a child, a person, a teen, depending on when they come out and express it, has really been something they've been thinking about for a while. And it's really a thought that's based on feelings of how they're being asked of society, from society of what their gender expression, meaning how they should dress, how they should wear versus what they're feeling comfortable with, what they see as their role in their uh, gender that they identify with, really are innate and something that they've thought of for a long time before the child or adolescent voices it. Mm. And... I know some people want to say, you know, is there a test that can be done that can tell us what our gender is? And there is no such a test because it's really our thoughts and our minds about how we feel is our identity. And this is very different from perhaps when you think about what is sex and that might be thought of based on like a chromosomes. And that's something that people may get tested, but that is what a sex is, but not necessarily the identity, the way in which someone thinks of themselves. Okay, so in terms of the children that you see as an endocrinologist, what age do you find that most youngsters start to realize that they're different or that they're identifying with a gender different from their anatomy, their sex? We have a a wide range of kids that will come to our clinic, sometimes just very little already in preschool. Parents have noticed that their child has really having some tendencies and trying to tell them. Of course, young children, when they're preschoolers, don't have the full vocabulary yet. So the parents have picked up that there are things that the child is more interested in and want to do and explore that may not be what society might have thought of as more traditional. And then as they develop their vocabulary, they can start expressing that gender identity. So we may start to have kids who show up at the time in which they're maybe eight or nine when they can start thinking about their body and they've learned that their bodies change when they're growing older 
And with that development, they might start to say, wait, my body fits with who I am as I identify, or it may not. And sometimes we also have adolescents who show up, and they might be early adolescents or later adolescents who really have the vocabulary and have learned about their own personal identity as well as in developing social relationships with their peers that they realize this is my identity and this is how I need to express it. So we see a whole range, and the thing I think it's important to stress is despite whatever age a young person may come out as, it doesn't make it one more transgender because they're older or they're younger at the time in which they reveal their identity. Mm. Do you find in your work that when they are actually able to have the language or the concepts to say, I, I don't feel like a girl, I may look like a girl, but I don't feel like a girl. Is that when they start to move in the journey, and then we'll talk a little bit about that, do some of the anger or depression or confusion, does it start to lift a bit? Because often as a psychologist, I'll hear about or someone will ask me about a youngster who is depressed or angry and As it happens, it turns out that the child is transgender, but they didn't have the words or maybe they didn't have the the comfort in talking about it. Do you find that coming to your your, um, clinic in some way relieves some of the psychological baggage attached? I think that, you know, absolutely when the child realizes with that term what they've been feeling inside and they can start to express it, their ability just to voice it helps already alleviate some of that anxiety and that depression. And that can occur right, you know, even so before they come to our clinic. And it may happen sometimes just uh, with their therapist or their psychologist first, and then they're referred to us. By the time, uh, sometimes some people don't reach that, of course, till they get to our clinic. And by the time they come to their our first visit with us, sometimes they feel that relief of I'm being heard. Someone's actually mm-hmm. listening to what I've been thinking in my head, and it's only been a voice in my head, and now I've expressed that voice, and people are listening and now want to learn about who I am. So I do agree that just being heard of what they need to say their message does help alleviate a lot of the anxiety, the depression, and the wondering of how am I you know, different in this world compared to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now, many people write about the journey that these youngsters take in terms of stages that go from dissonance, you know, to tolerance, eventually to acceptance. Do you see it that way, Dr. A? I think it's not necessarily a linear uh, model, and mm-hmm. perhaps because our young people are younger and they may not understand all the different steps. And sometimes, you know, there might be a challenge or someone may put a barrier that they might go back and say, is this, you know, should I question? No, this is who my identity is. Let me talk it out. So I'm not sure it's necessarily in a step-by-step progression. 
in right. young people. But I really think going back to the core of who they are, they can pretty much say, yes, I've been persistent in my thoughts on this. And I'm now learning how to accept this and how to voice who I am. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the most common age that a parent brings a youngster to your clinic? What what age? Of course, being a pediatric and adolescent um, clinic, we do get to see the younger children. But typically, I think if we had to pick an average age, maybe about 13 or 14. However, if you ask the children how long they've been thinking about it, a lot of them will have been have thought about it for a few years, even before they had come out. Okay, okay. Um, and generally, do you see the parents and the children separately or as a family session when you initially make the contact? So we have everybody come together. We do an intake and then have the parents uh, participate. And if there are separate uh, situations, if it wasn't uh, time for COVID, then we have, you know, everyone come in. And when we had to do some social distancing, we did have to get creative with different ways to have maybe people uh, participate from video and some and one parent be live, but we do have the whole family um, join us, and then we do uh, depending on the age of the young person, we do like to talk to them uh, separately and the parents separately and put them together, and also do a family visit. So the visits, as you know, you can see, are quite um, long. But we want to give everybody the opportunity to talk about their journey that brought them to our clinic. I think it's great. It sounds so good. So did your research unfold from your work, Dr. A? Yes. um, What we noticed in our clinic is that when families do come in, families come in at all different stages of being able to support and accept their child who's just revealed something to them about their gender identity. So we have some who come and say, you know, we were just told this and I'm not sure where this is coming from and I I need to learn. And others who've had discussions already and say, you know, we're ready to take on the next step or we're already working with our family and letting them know about our child's identity. So we looked at the different people that come in different stages and we thought, you know, there's got to be some things as a trend that maybe we can see, are there just tips from parents so that they can help support each other that we can try to find and then give that advice to other families so that when they come to our clinic, we can say, look, this is what other families have found to be useful in their support. And that really was how the study got uh, generated. Now, was there anything already in the field that had looked at that? Was there prior research that you were building upon? Yes, we do know that when there is family, particularly parental support for LGBTQ plus uh, adolescents and teens, it did make their transitions a lot um, easier and feel uh, safer and accepted. 
So there was some of that work. And in addition, in a smaller study of about 3 to 12-year-olds where children were um, gender expansive, they found that the rates of like depression and anxiety were only slightly higher than the rates of their match kind of peers that the children were growing up with and what the population for the area was because there was that parental support. So we felt that we could go a step further and see what are those parental support and if we're able to take that and let everyone know, you know, these are key things you can do, maybe we would have a better chance of helping other parents as well. I see. So you're, you took it the next step of being able to find out what you could actually talk about based on your research were the kinds of things that parents could do that would make their children feel supported and the kinds of things that children were saying that, they, that would help them. Yes, that, that was our aim, it was to see, can we find these uh, kind of parental tips for each other? Absolutely. And so you drew your sample from people coming to the clinic, Dr. A? Yes. Um, so <clears throat> that was part of it that, you know, of course, we don't know about the parents who don't come to the clinic. But to make it be unbiased, we did ask in a chronologic order. So we offered parents to so. Uh, participate as they were coming to the clinic to visit. So everyone had an opportunity to participate and we weren't just taking parents who were extremely supportive or not as supportive. We didn't Mm -hmm. know that level of support. We just offered the study to everybody. And really, I think if parents decided to participate or not was based on time, if they had the time to sit down and really go through an interview and a conversation with our team. So how many um, families were in the study? So we approached uh, more families than those who ended up being able to participate. And our goal was to get about 25 English-speaking families. And the reason being, of course, um, we wanted we didn't have members on our team who were native, um, other speakers of languages that could help okay. conduct this study. So we um, asked for English-speaking um, participants. And we wanted the adolescents to be older than 12, just so that they would be able to sit down and interview with our uh, researchers as well. Okay, we're going to take a brief break here. I apologize. This is Long Island Allergies. Um, We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Dr. Tandy A., and she's just about to discuss her important and innovative new study on the type of support that best, best helps, the type of parental support that best helps transgender teens. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen 
Hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, the program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Welcome back, folks. We're here with um, Dr. A, she's a professor of pediatrics at Stanford Medicine and a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford Children's Health Pediatric and Adolescent Gender Clinic. And Dr. A was just beginning to talk to us about her import, about the important new study she did, the Stanford study with teens and their parents. So, Dr. A, what type of questions did you ask parents and teens to gather your data? So we first started interviewing the parents separately, and we asked them, you know, what what were the pivotal moments, meaning the moments in which you could think about in your child's journey in revealing about their gender identity that you remember. So oftentimes the parents remembered exactly like the moment when the child sat them down and told them about their uh, gender identity or their uh, romantic attractions and had these conversations. Then we would say, you know, based on that pivotal moment, how were you feeling at that time of how supportive you were being as you're learning this information from your child? Then Mm -hmm. we would ask, you know, later, what did you do next? And also, 
how were you, what were you thinking inside that perhaps you didn't want to say to your child or adolescent, but asking yourself, you know, what was your level of acceptance and what was your level of adjustment at that time? Mm. So we took each pivotal moment and let the parents just have that open-endedness to walk us through that journey for themselves without having their child present. Now, you had both parents, if there were two parents present, Dr. A? Yes, and we gave each parent an opportunity to be able to participate. So even though we only had 25 families, for some of our families, both parents wanted to participate. So we would interview each parent separately to give them the opportunity to participate and express um, their pivotal moments and to be able to talk about their support and adjustment. You know, one of the things that I, I thought about in reading the results was whether or not there were differences between the moms and the dads and whether or not there were differences depending on the actual sex of the teen um, in terms of support, perception of support, and what they were sharing with you. And we don't have to talk, address that at the ver- this very moment, but I, I want to come back to that because I was wondering, seeing so many couples, I could picture possible differences, but we're going to wait and I want to hear from you on that. So in terms of the questions, they were open-ended questions, and then you talk something about also surveys. What would be an example of a survey question, and what would be an example of an open-ended question that a parent might get? So in, in terms of a survey, it was more of um, a, a, a demographic, you oh, know, okay. question asking about um, what was the parents. And, and I think this is also something that was innovative in we asked um, it, what's the parents' gender identity because oftentimes mm. we didn't always have parents who were what you would think of stereotypically cisgender male or, you know, cisgender Mm -hmm. female. So we wanted to give that opportunity for parents and also to ask, you know, parents about their own uh, relationship between the two parents. So there was an opportunity for us to ask that of the parents, and that would be self-identified in the direct question. And then in the open-ended question is really letting the parents start with what they really thought were moments that they could remember and then letting them lead us into more uh, specifics. So, for instance, maybe they say, I remember, um, you know, I learned about the identity. Then I asked my child, should we go shopping? Because I wanted to show support. Uh-huh. And how were you feeling about that moment when you took them shopping to perhaps get clothing that the child had wanted? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how about the, the, the questions that the, the teens responded to? What type of open-ended questions did they get? Yeah, so the interesting fact, I think, you know, one of the innovations in this study is that the teens have never been usually asked about how they see or how they perceive their parents as being supportive at each of these moments. Oftentimes, we've always asked about the parents' point of view. So this is like a way for us to kind of check in and say, you know, to the young people, well, what do you really think about your parents? 
And, you know, we were pleasantly uh, surprised, and it just shows how important the parent-child uh, uh, relationship is. Because the teens, you know, were in agreement that when the parents were trying to show their support, that the teens agreed, yes, you know, my parents are trying to show me that support. And not only that, in fact, the teens rated their parents even more supportive than what the parents really were rating themselves. That's so So interesting. Yes, um, that was one of our most, um, you know, exciting uh, Mm -hmm. results. Uh, to to see that and to say wow you know we re- the the teens absolutely valued um, their parents. Mm-hmm. Now, when you asked, I think one of your questions. Correct me if I don't have it quite right. You asked the parents, what actions do you think showed your children the most support? And then you asked the teens, what actions of your parents do you think shows the most support? What were those results like? Yeah, it was pretty um, interesting because for the parents, they really thought about connecting the teens to resources, to particularly mental health or having them connected to a provider, really actions of, you know, getting them services and getting them that support was the first thing that parents often thought of. But for the teens, it was actually a lot more simpler. It was saying, you know, the fact that my parents wanted to use the right pronoun for me and wanted to use the right name for me showed that that's what was most important because they're respecting and they listened to what I had said to them. And Mm -hmm. they felt that the parents' adoption of that name and pronoun was the most informed um, of support that they could give. And then was followed by another item that parents can easily do, and that was just to be there to be compassionate and physically, you know, give a hug or a kiss and say, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think back to a show we did uh, with Jane Baker. Her book was When Our Son Became Our Daughter. It was called Trading Places. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 right, it reminded me that she had such difficulty, Dr. A, with the pronoun and the name. So her son was named Stephen. And when he shared with her that he was transgender and was going to transition, and the name came up, she said, can you call yourself Stephanie? And she said, no, that's not going to be my name, Mom. Stephen's not here, Mom. I'm not going to be Stephanie. I'm going to choose a different name. And it was so poignant because she, and I think you even make reference that this is hard for parents because the name that we think of when we're going to have a baby is all about that baby. And so it really is a step for parents, I believe, to use the preferred name and the pronoun. Absolutely. It, it takes, you know, a lot of uh, support and for them to learn because I think any name that gets chosen, it's always a whole thought process that goes into it in mm-hmm. a parent. And so to have to readjust and it's just also something that has become probably habit of always calling something, right? Right. And so 
when the parents put in that effort, the adolescents really appreciate it and really take notice of it. Mm. You know, the other thing you mentioned is that you asked parents about their internal struggle, that although parents were being truly trying to be supportive of their teens, they they were internally not quite there. I mean, they were they were facing a very big thing for them too. Absolutely. And I think that's important as providers. You know, even when the parents scored really highly from their teens of being supportive, there was some adjustments even in those most supportive parents. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we can think of it as parents are doing their best and in protecting their young people and saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm going to put the most positive outlook so that you feel supportive. And it can also be something for us to learn from is that even for the most supportive parents, we as providers, everyone else, you know, in the community also need to support these families, these parents, because they themselves are actually, you know, going through something that's hard and they're having Mm -hmm. to readjust and for us to take that moment to help them too. Yeah, they, they often talk about, and I remember Jane did, about grieving the loss of her son as her daughter emerges. But she would then say, and her important message was, my son had no friends. My son was isolated. My son was a wonderful little boy who didn't seem to connect. My daughter now is very social. My daughter now is very happy. So if a parent is given the support, I'm loving what you're saying, that for the, for the teens to make it and for the transition to go, we've got to support both groups so that the parents can in turn then be supportive in during this journey with these teens. Right. We, we can't forget the parents as well. And, you know, it will help the parents also see that you've got your great child in front of you still. You know, here they are. And let's, you know, see what we can do together to get you to a place as a family and help you with the journey. As, as, you're, as parents, I guess, you know, as you're learning to get towards acceptance and as for the child, as they're just exploring and learning about their identity. Well, one of the other things that, you know, you you mentioned before, and I think it's typical of parents, is they considered support finding resources because I think parents get quite overwhelmed with, I love this child, I'm going to do whatever, but maybe I don't know enough and I have got to find a resource and I've read about puberty blockers or hormones and, and there's even legislative issues with that. So, How do we help the parents? Because the kids aren't necessarily into that, as you point out. They just want somebody to call them by their new Mm -hmm. name and be with them Mm -hmm. at this point in the journey. But what type of information can we give parents? Like parents are afraid or they're not sure what to make. Maybe just for our listeners, what, what is a puberty blocker? What is the hormone treatment? What would that be for their emerging young adult as their teen moves on? 
Sure. I think, you know, first, there's a lot of good resources um, that are available online for, for instance, um, something like Gender Spectrum that has resources mm-hmm. uh, for parents to read as a good website. And also locally in every um, city, there's probably LGBTQ plus centers with their website that can connect or to their local uh, gender clinics as well. Um, okay. In terms of learning about some of the vocabulary then that the young people may talk to to the parents, um, you know, for instance, you mentioned uh, puberty blockers. So I always have liked to think of them as a pubertal pauser. So what happens is when it's time to go into puberty, our brains tell our body it's time to go into puberty and sends a message uh, that's a uh, biochemical message to the body. And when that message is received, then the body responds and starts to have the changes of puberty that happen over time. So there is a medication that can be given that mimics this message that says it's time to go into uh, puberty. And when this medication is given, it actually turns off the body's message to say it's time for you to be developing and it puts the body's message on hold or on pause. And the advantage of using a medication like this is that it will give the child the time to explore and to think without the physical changes of puberty continuing at the same time. So it's really used as a way to bridge some extra time to allow for the exploration and the thinking that's needed and without feeling time pressured. Mm. And that's how we use it. And as um, kids, hormone doctors, we've been using them for decades. So it's, it's a safe option for delaying at least. It's a option that can definitely uh, be safe and if you're using it, you know, under the supervision and it's an option, if, if that option is appropriate for the child, we would want, you know, someone to evaluate to see where they are in their development to make sure, and I'm talking about uh, physical development, as well as their gender journey, as well as where they are in their maturation of their body to, eval- to be evaluated to make sure that it would be a safe option and to balance risks and benefits as in any medication for the child. Yes. So a youngster may not be ready for any of that. As you say so beautifully in your study, they might just need a hug and people being willing to use the different pronoun and the new name, and they're not even ready to consider any type of intervention because they're really not in that spot yet on their journey. That's right. That's um, sometimes the case, and I think parents come in, you know, having stayed up and maybe read all the resources and gotten information, and they might be 10 steps ahead, and where the young person is is really saying, I just want to talk about this with you, you know, mom or dad, or, you know, just learn about this and help me figure out where I need to get to. Can we talk about it in in a safe environment? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to go back to my differences between moms and dads and um, male and female teens. 
did you see any differences between mothers and fathers in their response to you as the uh, researchers or in their answers to questions or in the interviews? We saw a trend that was just starting, but because we didn't have enough of the parents participate, I'm not sure if the trend will continue to hold out. We had um, nine sets of parents where we were able to have both the mother and the father, mm-hmm. and so we can make some comparisons, but it seemed from the trends that we started seeing that the mothers perhaps may have had higher support um, based on the numbers than perhaps the fathers had mm-hmm. um, in our study. But again, that's something that we would have to confirm in having larger families participate. Mm. How about the teens themselves? A transgender you know, boy or... Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, excuse me. Yeah, it's harder for us to know for that because when we um, recruited... There, we had about almost an even split, mm. uh, with 12 being what we're, we say are trans-masculine, and we had seven who were trans-feminine, um, and then we okay. also had those who were non-binary. Okay. So, again, I think in larger numbers, we would be able to extrapolate and think of what other trends might be there that are present. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one thing that you came up with that you said you realized there was a difference in terms of the parents between support and acceptance. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think acceptance is a longer journey that a parent may reach after being supportive of their child for a period of time. So I think someone can support right away and say, what can I do? You know, where where can I be there? And in the meantime, be processing how I'm going to accept this identity. And so being supportive is what we look and what are those steps in being supportive and hopefully, you know, to leading to acceptance and helping the family get to that point. And the journey is just so variable for each family of how long it takes and where their journey is going to lead to. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. Wonderful, wonderful information. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Dr. A. She's an endocrinologist from Stanford Medicine, and she's talking about her very important study on what really is it? What type of support do trans teens need most from their parents? And what is the journey for both parent and teen? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back, folks. We're here with Dr. Tandy A. She's a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford Children's Health Pediatric and Adolescent Gender Clinic. She, we've been talking about her important new Stanford study and about family support and family, eventually family acceptance and the parallel journeys of parent and teen. So one of the things, Dr. A, that I often become aware of because people will bring it in, a grandmother might bring it in, is has to do with well, I'm going to ask you if this is true. Some of the material that you read about the journey suggests that as a teen moves from confusion to tolerance, where this is me, sometimes that comes with self-hate and loathing because it's an isolating time. They don't want to be in this position, but this is how they feel they're most authentic. So they don't know who to identify with. They're not sure how to dress. Parents are often frightened, as they've told me, that someone's going to harm their child. Um, Jane Baker, that was her greatest fear, was that someone would harm her child if she made the transition that she actually made. So the question becomes, how do we help parents and teens, how do we help teens who do start to feel very, very depressed and fragile at those times? And how do we help the parents in their response? I think the first thing is, you know, getting them connected to someone that the teen feels they can talk to. Not only connected with the parent for the family support and bringing up this as a conversation that's safe to have at home, but also to have people who are trained in mental health to allow someone, I always like to think of it as be kind of coached in helping 
develop that identity and to talk it out and what feels right for them, to do some of that education for themselves, for the teen and for the parents, to learn the terminology and to know what resources are available. Parents can always start with listening and being in the moment when these conversations are happening and using that name and pronoun that the child is asking for and then going to the next step of then getting the resources and support outside of the home environment so there is a further discovery for that uh, young person to be able to talk about. And if they're Mm. not sure where to go and to ask, I think asking their primary care provider or going online and looking at the local LGBTQ plus support groups and looking for gender clinics in their communities, they will be able to get the communities where or clinics in, like ours where they can come and talk to. Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered or run groups for the parents and parallel groups for teens? Where I am, I'm fortunate that there are wonderful groups that do exist um, locally in our community that are run by great programs. So we absolutely Mm. do refer the parents uh, to uh, join such groups. And even during COVID, they've been able to have them by Zoom. And some of the groups are also based on perhaps age. So maybe Mm -hmm. parents who have older teens versus uh, children in elementary school. And sometimes there are parent groups for different gender identities so that the parents really have more of a commonality and to come and uh, talk to each other. As, as the Community Outreach Chair for the American Group Psychotherapy Association, I can't tell you I'm excited to hear that because the power of group in terms of normalizing, dealing with isolation, dealing with depression is so powerful. That, that is great to know that you, and that you have those resources. And I guess I want our listeners to know to reach out to find those wherever they happen to be for themselves and for their youngsters. Do you find what I'm worried about in terms of the risk behavior and the despair, do you find that that is up front or the children are sharing that, the teens are sharing that, or the parents are talking about fear of suicide or fear of risk behavior in their kids? Are they open about it in front of their children? I think... Maybe not so directly, but they definitely say it when they might say something like, I worry for you, I'm, I'm afraid, I want to be there for you. And you, you can see it, um, that powerful um, kind of maybe body language and just the love that the parents try to express. And I think the young people and the teens are very aware of um, what happens and that this is a true fear that their parents may have. And sometimes that's why it took them a little longer for them to talk to their parents about it because they were trying to protect their parents as well. And Mm. they wanted to wait and were thinking, how can I come out and tell that information? Because I don't want to hurt my parents as well. Mm. So what was did you feel was the most important take-home message or finding of your study, Dr. A? I think when parents first 
get this information or learn about their information of their child's gender identity, they immediately are trying to learn and think of what do I do next, what can I do, what can I do, and maybe sometimes feel like they don't know enough. And the most important thing is to just take a moment and say, you know, parents, you actually are able to do what the teens want the most, which is to be able to use the name and to use the pronoun that your child has asked and to be there to offer a hug and to be that way just to show compassion when they're just needing a hug or a physical assurance from their family that they're being loved. So that that support, that support that even validates their journey with the pronoun and the name is one of the most, it's one of the most protective factors that a parent could offer. Absolutely. Mm, it's a beautiful finding and it's probably, it's it's def, doesn't it fit to what we know about parents and kids. What do you think the next step of your research is going to be? So we're already expanding this outside of our community and seeing do these findings still hold true if we're at a, another location um, mm. in, you know, out of state and to also can we find some of the same findings but are going to be new if we're using a different clinic and a different population so that um, we have more numbers and to be able to validate it. Oh, further. how interesting and important. So how would, Dr. A, how would parents, teens, professionals, find you and learn more about what you offer, what you've written. How can people find you, professionals and parents? Our uh, clinic has a website, and if you look at the Stanford Children's Health uh, Gender Clinic, our website has a lot of resources as well as how appointments can be made uh, to be able to to come uh, to our clinic. Okay. Um, And is there any take-home message you want to give to our parents and teens, transgender teens? We acknowledge that, you know, it's going to be a journey. There's going to be ups and downs along the road. And as providers, we feel privileged to help you on that journey. But always remember that we are a resource and we're here to help you uh, throughout that time. And hopefully we're part of that support group for you as well. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Special thanks to you, Dr. A, for coming on Psych Up Live, for sharing your research, which I think is a gift of understanding and acceptance to parents and teens taking the transgender journey. So I thank you again for fitting us into your schedule and sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for having me and for highlighting this um, important parent-child uh, relationship. Thanks. You're welcome. To my listeners, I want to thank you. And remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. By 6 p.m. Eastern, this will be a podcast on almost every platform. It will be on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon Alexa, etc. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please continue to be safe. Thanks and be listening. 
thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.